Hello and welcome to Into the Aether. It's a low-key video game podcast. My name is Brendan Bigley. I'm Stephen Hilger. We are back. Truth be told, we just recorded last week's episode. And we didn't even take a break. We're just here. We just hit record again. We're recording this week's episode. It's always worth specifying. Like a lot of other shows will just record ahead of time, have like a bunch in the bank and not mention it. Yeah. But for some reason, whenever we do it, there's like a there's like payback somehow. Like there's something that happens that week <laughs> that everyone's like, why didn't Brendan Steven talk about this? And it's yeah. like, we just, we're so used to being, not that we're like that topical, but like something about not announcing that this is ahead of time always like stands out if we don't. Yeah. Nintendo announces the Waluigi boy advance. It's like, yeah, oh and, my God. And we're talking about like Mario tennis. It's like what? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you and I wanted to talk about uh, a game that I think we've been like trepidatiously anticipating we've been both like hopefully this is good but we've been burned enough times i would say was it last year or two years ago i think there was like a pretty big focus on the show in general like one of the many threads of the aether was like chrono trigger and games inspired by it uh and you and i kind of explored that from a lot of different avenues we started with a bonus where we played chrono trigger which was amazing and really fun and then we played a bunch of games that uh have like either in marketing or in the uh, collective conversation about them have stated that they were inspired in some ways by Chrono Trigger. And I think, you know, you can go back and listen to that Chrono Trigger bonus and there's a lot of our thoughts about that. But specifically, I think one of the things about that game that you and I really connected with that we're always looking for in these games that say they're inspired by Chrono Trigger is like that game, you know, outside of like the, the creation of it, you know, being this like super group of developers, you know, all kind of at the top of their games making... Uh, like hot off the heels of making some of the best entries in their respective franchises. Chrono Trigger manages to make a turn-based RPG that feels like it both gets the active time battle system right in a way that like even Final Fantasy doesn't in a lot of ways. Yeah. And also manages to tell like a pretty truncated story that has like real kind of tangible stakes and like an emotional core that is like about something thematically also. And I think takes a lot of tropes of the genre and ideas of the genre mechanically and scales them back and pairs them down in a way that makes them like really approachable to pretty much everybody. And I think it's like almost the perfect encapsulation of what I think they thought the future of the genre could be. And almost nobody has correctly pulled all of those aspects. So I've been thinking about like, you know, the, this sort of wave of games that have been that say directly, like, we're trying to sort of recapture the magic of Chrono Trigger. And a lot of them also just sort of say, like, we want to recapture that sort of, like, specific era of that golden age of RPGs in the, you know, mid-90s. And there have been a lot of recent examples, like Chain Deco's and Octopath Traveler 2, that I think manage to both, like, function as homage, but also feel like they, they distinctly have their own flavor. And I think that's, like, the main thing you you have to accomplish when you're doing this because i think if you just go after the nostalgia or like we're gonna sort of like try to make a game in that style visually it will only exist to be in direct comparison to chrono trigger the greatest game ever made and that's like a really uphill battle and that's why a lot of people didn't really connect with lost sphere you know not to dunk on that game too much but like that game is like totally fine but i think it fails to really find its own identity and therefore, when you're playing it, you're just like, why am I not just playing one of the other games that exist that yeah. inspired this? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that you talk about or, or you brought up years ago that I think about a lot is this idea of like 
inspiration is okay, but if you're only pulling inspiration from one point, then you're going to be compared to that point too heavily. Whereas if you're pulling inspiration from multiple different points, then you'll probably create something accidentally new, right? Yeah. Because you're pulling a bunch of different aspects from a bunch of different kind of disparate things. And Shane Deckers is a good example of that. I was like, about to it's, say, yeah. It's very like... It's like 80% Final Fantasy VI, but yeah. like there's a lot of Chrono Sugar. There's a lot of Xeno Gears. There's even some Final Fantasy X and twelve in there. Like, yeah. And and it does feel distinct from all of them because I think that game is trying to be kind of edgier and a little bit more satirical, like of the genre in some ways. Or yeah. at least like a deconstruction, if yeah. that's that. There, there's, there's an awareness of tropes in that game yeah. that I think is like really uh worn on its sleeve and kind of acted upon. And I think talking about Tokyo RPG Factory, the the short-lived, well, maybe not short-lived, but the side studio set up by Square Enix, specifically by people who wanted to make games inspired by Chrono Trigger, they made three games, I Am Setsuna, Lost Sphere, and then uh, Oninaki. And I Am Setsuna, their first release, I think is the closest they get mm-hmm. to making a game that is like successful on that front. Oh, totally, yeah. And it's mainly because... You know, the things they take from Chrono Trigger mainly are a pretty like truncated story. Like it's pretty short. The combat is almost exactly the same. Yeah, every uh, the, the paraglider is to like Breath of the Wild likes what the X slash is to any game that says Chrono Trigger. Yes. They all have their own X slash. And I get it. It's a cool move. Yeah. But what I am sets and manages to do to set itself apart are a have an absolutely amazing, super paired back minimalist piano score that is almost entirely done just with like one composer and one piano. It's like really, really stellar. Um, and they have a really unique setting and a really unique story set in a setting or a really unique story that could only be told in the unique setting that they've created, which I think is, you know, if you're making like fantasy fiction at all, that's like one of the most important aspects of it. And the the world they managed to craft is, you know, based entirely in a world that is just snowy, like it is just covered in like an, an endless snowstorm. And, you know, that also aids the score, you know, the very like light piano music, I think really aids that like kind of snowy atmosphere. But I think that that world and that story and those mechanics really do coalesce into being something greater than some of his parts. It's not as good as Chrono Trigger, in my opinion, but like it's the closest Tokyo RPG Factory managed to get. Lost Sphere, I think, gets really lost in the sauce in terms of like creating a world that you want to live in and characters that you want to travel with. I think that's like the biggest problem of that game. I think there's a lot of that game mechanically and honestly, thematically that works, but narratively kind of falls on its face a lot of the time and oninaki is like a totally different thing they weren't trying to do chrono trigger with that one thankfully uh but then they got shut down sadly anyway point being you and i played a lot of these games that have been trying to be chrono trigger and sea of stars is coming at it from a really interesting angle i think uh where they've been like very boldly claiming kind of like tokyo rpg factory like this is a game that's inspired by Chrono Trigger. This is a game that's inspired by one of the best games of all time. We're like really trying to bring that to life again. We're trying to serve that audience. Here it is. And the first trailer they showed, you know, you have your dual protagonists. You could choose between either of them. Incredible score, beautiful pixel art. It just seemed like this was maybe going to be the one. It's also by like an established studio. It's by a studio that made The Messenger, which was like a really, really well-loved side-scrolling kind of Ninja Gaiden-like and, uh, you know, it just like coming from that pedigree is like, maybe this will be the team that does it. They also got Yasunori Mitsuda to guest compose 10 tracks, right. which is like as close to being knighted by the, you know, <laughs> Chrono Trigger team as you can get. The, the thing I've also been thinking about is like, why is it that like when 
you know, games that come out that are trying to be purposely retro RPGs will either say like just that era or specifically Chrono Trigger. Very few people, even Octopath isn't saying outright Final Fantasy V, even though you can feel it. Yeah. Like, why is it always Chrono Trigger other than it being like a, a widely beloved classic? And I really think specifically for Chrono Trigger, there hasn't been a game really like it. Like, I feel like, you know, we we cover a lot of different eras on the show and we talk a lot about influence. And to be clear, I think even tracing influence is a subjective process, like what we spot and what we can trace other things. It's also largely subconscious on the creator's part. Even when you say like, we were inspired by this, like we're inspired by music when we make games, you know, we're inspired by everything in our lives. So it's hard to like trace directly, but I do think it's worthwhile seeing like what kind of created a splash. Like we last episode talked a lot about Starfield and a lot about Bethesda's legacy and how like, Skyrim had a notable like for for 10 years every game was doing Skyrim in yeah. some way. Witcher 3 you can draw a direct line from Skyrim to that game. You know, obviously Witcher 1 and 2 as well, but like just the way the UI worked, the way the quest system worked. Chrono Trigger ironically has not had that visible influence. It's sort of this like moment where the sky opened up and dropped a game and then we all kind of kept moving on. Yeah, like even the people who made that game as kind of their pie in the sky, this is what the future of the genre can be, just like went back and kept making Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy games. It's worth noting that the actual sequel to Chrono Trigger <laughs> didn't even try to be Chrono Trigger. They yeah. like knew better than to try to just recapture the same magic twice. Yeah. <laughs> so I I am I always have my guard up not to dissuade anyone from creating what they want because like I I get it. Like this is Chrono Trigger is amongst my favorite games of all time. I I would to want to recapture that magic in some way but it's also almost like the height of hubris to try like i think <laughs> i think it is like not to like talk like i have nothing but respect for the people that work on these games but like it is kind of like saying we want to be the next beatles if you've started a band you know mm. like it's just it's it's a very tall order yeah so all i just say i've i'm four hours into sea of stars and i think I, the, the best thing I can say about it is that it does feel very distinct as much as they've like said in their marketing and, you know, drawn comparisons to Chrono Trigger. I, I don't really feel like they just are trying to copy the game at all. It feels like a very fresh take on this type of game. And I think the presentation is like outrageously beautiful. Like yeah. I'm playing this on Xbox and just like there are moments where I just like sit on the world map. There's like a sleeping dragon just in the corner. <laughs> it reminds yeah. me like as much as the world map is clearly going for the like the characters even kind of walk in the weird line that they do in Chrono Trigger. Mm -hmm. It reminds me a lot of like Super Mario World where it just has this like this feeling of like I can't wait to get over there eventually and yes. see what the what the hell that area is. So to kind of explain like how the game operates like you, you said you choose between uh, two leads. It doesn't change the story at all. So this is not a brain punk uh, venture. We're not doing Scarlet Nexus or Three Houses. It is just like, who do you want to play as? And it's Zale and either Valera or Valera. I'm not sure to pronounce it. I've been saying Valera to myself, but basically one character wields the power of the sun, uh, Zale, and he fights with like a scimitar and uh, Valera has the power of the moon and fights with the staff. I think it's just Valer. V-A-L-E-R-E. -E, yeah. Yeah, I wasn't sure if the E was pronounced differently, but yeah, Zale and Valer, we'll say. And basically they are uh, called Solstice Warriors. And I'm only about four hours in. I think it's also kind of like a shorter game. It's like 20-ish hours. 
But the story so far is them kind of having gone through this like ritual training and now they're kind of setting out on the world to like fight a great evil. And it honestly reminds me a lot of Avatar. Like I'm actually getting more Last mm. Airbender than Chrono Trigger. Yeah, I was going to bring up Avatar as well. Yeah, But yeah, so like overall, I think and, and the way the game plays mechanically, it's it's turn based. So it's actually not ATB like Chrono Trigger. And it has a lot it has a lot of different systems going on. So there's definitely a Chrono Trigger influence with with the ability for characters to do moves at the same time. But the way it works, like you have attack, uh, skill and item, you know, very classic. And if you time your attacks right, sort of like Paper Mario, you can like attack twice. Or if you time it right for uh, blocking, you can receive less damage. I will say I always kind of dread when games try to do this. It almost like never works. I think this game does it pretty well. I think it works way better for the attacks than defending. I wish there was like a universal visual signifier for when the enemy attacks because like you basically just have to eat shit to know when to block even. And I think the game is expecting you to nail the defense most of the time because enemies do so much damage. Yeah, yeah. That's like my main gripe with the combat. I think... Did you turn that relic on? Uh, you can turn on a relic that just like makes sure you do it every time. Oh, I, I there's a relic that you unlock that... Um shows you a visual signifier when you get it right oh that I, I will turn that on i you can also buy like they kind of um i like how they sort of internalize uh accessibility options as like items you can get you can also buy them at a store yeah i just got one that makes it so that you automatically do two attacks every time oh wow but for a little bit less damage oh that's interesting which is cool i i don't mind it for the attacks but yeah for the for the defense i need a little bit of help right what's cool is that they have this unique system where when an enemy is preparing an attack it will show visually the types of attacks you can do to like break its guard and prevent that spell from even happening and i really like that system you know it, it's kind of a little bit of um octopath where like you'll see an enemy's weakness and you can break their guard to prevent the move but it's only like every now and then that that pops up so you'll see like two bludgeoning attacks and a moon or a sun or something so you'll know like what abilities to use i i'm starting to find the combat to be a little bit repetitive uh even though i'm only like a few hours in i just think the like this is also an issue i have with shandekos like every battle is trying to utilize all the systems which i appreciate but sometimes you can just have like a throwaway battle where you just power through like i think about mm -hmm. persona 5 a lot and like most battles you get into in persona 5 are over in two moves. You know, yeah. you do the magic attack, you do it and you move on. And I think it's kind of important for the pacing of the game like this to have the combat be quick. Another lesson to be learned by Chrono Trigger, very fast paced game. I was about to say, if you're leveled up enough in Chrono Trigger and you run into an enemy that's a lower level than you, you just beat them immediately. I don't know. That's that happens in Earthbound. I'm actually not sure if that happens in Chrono Trigger, but regardless, like I don't think it does, but I could be wrong. Still, like combat is very quick in in Chrono yeah. Trigger. I will say though, the boss battles so far in Sea of Stars have been like amazing. There's a move uh, Valer has where she can throw a moon boomerang and then block and it will bounce back seemingly as often as you can time that and it gets faster and faster. That is so fun to pull off. It so is, I think yeah. they they have, I think for me, justified having like the timing in a way that works better than in most games I've seen. And overall, I'm having a really good time. I think it's 
The music and the presentation are very whimsical. There's also like the biggest surprise, and I think one of the elements of this game that makes it feel distinct is how good movement feels. I did not expect there to be an Uncharted influence here, but there is. <laughs> yeah. Like the dungeons, one, I think are really well designed and they have some nice, like not too hard, but hard enough puzzles to keep things interesting. But there's like climbable walls. There's like short little gaps you can squeeze between. Movement just feels really good and it makes exploring a place like feel really fun to do. So I think they've really nailed like I think one of the things about Chrono Trigger is like it is even when the stakes get higher and it becomes a little bit darker of a game, it is such a fun time. Like it, The sense of adventure and the amount of like, you know, it just feels like they said yes to every idea in a good way where mm -hmm. it's like we're going to have our cake and eat it too constantly. We're going to go to the prehistoric era. We're going to meet a frog that speaks in Shakespearean English, you know, and I think Sea of Stars kind of knows like how important that like sense of adventure is. Yeah. Uh, and overall, like, I'm in a, I'm in a place right now where I just met like a mining town full of mole people and I'm now helping them out with this dungeon and uh, it's really fun. And I appreciate that the game is also like on the shorter side. So I feel compelled to see it through. Yeah, as far as I know, it takes like 25 to 30 hours total. Yeah, which is great. so kind of a no brainer. I mean, I'm already a quarter of the way in and it's felt effortless. My major gripe with the game is I don't feel super invested narratively like at all. Mm. And I think that's kind of a problem when the pacing early on, at least, is fairly off. Like without spoiling too much, the game like kind of opens in media res and then does a flashback to when uh, Zale and Valer are kids with their uh, non-bender uh, friend Garl, yeah. who is just like a normal human citizen. Uh, and the game opens and they're like, man, I, I miss Garl. You know, Garl was a real friend. Yeah. And then it cuts back to them with Garl and they like sneak into a cave. It goes horribly wrong. I won't spoil what happens, but it's actually a pretty shocking moment. And then I basically so loud at like 1.30 in the morning playing that, that moment. Yeah. The headmaster comes in and is like, okay, like Garl, like you like shouldn't be hanging out with these two. They're destined for greater things. You're just like a normie. Go home with your injury and you're not going to see your friends for 10 years. Yeah. And then the next like hour is just them in training. And by the end of that sequence, I don't think I could tell you anything about who Valer or Zale are as characters. Mm. Like I like them and I like their interactions, but I think like, at this point in Chrono Trigger, which I normally wouldn't compare a game to, but here we are, you know, yeah. if you're inviting it. In Chrono Trigger, we're, one, having the time of our lives at a fair, so already <laughs> an unfair contest. But two, I think we're getting archetypes, but very effective broad strokes at who these characters are. So Chrono, classic silent protagonist. We meet Marley at the fair. She's kind of like a fun, extroverted tomboy who wants to like connect with the world. We meet our friend Luca, who's our, you know, a childhood friend who's this brilliant inventor, uh, kind of arrogant, has big theater kid energy. I love her. <laughs> and then we meet like a, a frog who's a medieval knight. Like it's I'm not saying that we get like a deep understanding of character in Chrono Trigger, even by the end. But we have a really strong sense of who these characters are. We can imagine a scene with them and like imagine who they are in our heads. And I don't feel that at all for these two. And I think that was like a huge missed opportunity. If you're going to like not like if you're going to basically make like an hour of story happen and by the end we don't know anything new, I think that's a pretty big missed opportunity. Yeah, yeah. I, the only people you really get a really good sense for are the headmaster who is the one training you and then the kind of like two previous 
trainees who have kind of like grown yes. up and are, and are like the people that uh, Valer and Zale look up to. But it's worth mentioning these two protagonists are not silent protagonists also. Like there is dialogue that they have and they are, you know, throw an exposition out there. They are talking about their experience going through training. And I, I feel similarly, like I don't really have a connection to these two yet. Um, and I, I think you're right that it's a huge missed opportunity to not infuse that hour of training montage with characterization for them specifically because it's the two of them they're like they're kids right so like you know you don't you don't know quite who they are yet but the only real sense that i walked away with in terms of who these people are is like they're both ambitious they work yeah, hard they're, they're excited for the future and they miss garl that's yeah. all you get yeah and i okay i need okay spoiler warning for the first two hours of the game i need to talk about garl for a second <laughs> he he is the microcosm of like my narrative complaints for this game. To be clear, like I'm still invested in the story. I'm very excited to see where it goes. I don't think it's like poorly written, but I think it's bizarrely paced for like the opening couple hours. Yeah. Well, uh, I, just to comment on that real quick and then, and then let's definitely talk about Garl. Um, yeah. But we have to talk about Garl. We got to talk about Garl. Um, yeah. But, uh, the, the weird thing is like, as you mentioned, it starts in media res. You're like climbing a mountain and stuff and they teach you combat in that moment. Yeah. And then they do the flashback and you go through quote unquote training with this headmaster. And that is the tutorial, right? They teach you combat a second time, which is bizarre yes. to me. You know, they, they go more in depth. Obviously, they teach you like magic. They teach you a bunch of things here and there. But like we've already gone through a tutorial and now we're going through a second tutorial. And that, I think, is where this disconnect lies that you and I have. Yes. Right. Where it's like if I'm going to go through a tutorial a second time, then at least infuse it with something more interesting. Like they're definitely setting up the story and some narrative stakes and they're setting up Garl and all this stuff. But I, I, I did want more from Zale and Valer. Uh, just to be clear, I am not that far in the game. I am about two hours in. So I, I have like finished the training montage and I'm like back in the quote unquote like main story now. This isn't a deal breaker by any means, but it's my main frustration because everything else is working so well. Yes. And I, and I want to feel like the feeling you get in Chrono Trigger when Frog and Chrono do X slash is just friendship. It's like <laughs> it. The, honestly, the closest X slash has ever been replicated is the all out attack and persona. I that, totally agree. That yes. is the true X slash of, of, of gaming. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I said that anyway. So like, cause I want to feel like when, when Valer bounces the moon boomerang back and forth, I want to be like, hell yeah. Like I know who she is, what she's fighting for. And I just don't, I just know that I want to keep playing the pretty video game. Anyway, we got to talk about girl. So girl <laughs> is, is it's a, it's honestly a really effective moment and the game wants it to be these three childhood friends. So again, spoilers for girl for the first two hours ish of the game. If you want to completely avoid this, skip ahead. We'll talk more about this game afterwards. What happens in that cave when they're kids is they're exploring, they run into monsters, and Garl leaps in the way of Valer to defend her against this horned beast, and he loses an eye. Um, they don't show it like graphically, but he like, you see this child crying, holding his eye, and I'm like, that is awful. And then what happens next is the headmaster comes in, is basically like, you two have to start training like tonight. 
now. Yeah. If you're that, e- and I think that's like a, that's a pretty effective beat. It's like, you're so over eager that like, okay, you're losing your childhood tonight. Yeah. Like you're going to start training. Right. And they also have to tell Garl to go home and basically be like, you're not going to see them again because you don't wield magical powers. Right. That's so tragic. Yes. And I messaged you. I'm like, there's no way Garl isn't the bad guy. Yeah. After that. Yeah. You like, and I both immediately were like, absolutely. He's going to show up with an eye patch and be so resentful. Yeah. Okay. Here's what happens. So you, you know, it cuts to them training. You eventually do like a trial and then you begin your quest. And then in town, there's like a seeing off ceremony for the new solstice warriors. Yes. And Garl isn't there. Right. And they're like, man, it's so weird that he's not here. Now, keep in mind, this is the only thing we're getting from these two characters is how great Garl was and how weird it is that he's not here. It's worth mentioning that during the training sequence for that like entire hour, like Garl's tr- Garl tries to sneak up into the sky to like deliver, I think, like cookies or sandwiches or yeah. something. And he gets caught. He gets caught again by the headmaster, but it manages to like sneak some cookies and a note like on on the premises which you find at one point. And they're like, Garl's the best. And yeah. I'm like, this is going to end in tragedy. So when and Garl it, doesn't show up at this, at this like big kind of um, seeing off ceremony, I was like, did the headmaster fucking kill this kid? Yeah, right. There's so, this is, it's all Garl all the time for an hour. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you eventually set out on your journey and very early on at camp, Garl jumps out of the bushes. He is with ready with the backpack with a with a tasteful scar over his lost eye and he's like hey 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 for the last 10 years i've been waiting for you two and i can't wait to go on an adventure together i can fight with the frying pan lid and i'm really good at cooking so like you'll have a reason for having me around and they're like dude you can't come like we just wanted to say goodbye to you. Like you can't actually come with us. And I'm like, here it is. Yeah. Like this is, this is the this turn. Is so tragic. And he goes, but no, I'm like really good at finding berries and cooking. And then they go, Oh, okay. And then he joins. <laughs> then you get to the like God of this task who is like judging them to be worthy. Yeah. And he's like, we don't normally let like normies through, but you're like, seem like a nice guy. So you can go with them. Okay. I'm just like, what the fuck just happened? Like, I think what they're what they're trying to do is subvert expectations. Right. It's, it's like very clear that he's like set up to be resentful. Mm-hmm. And what they're saying is like this guy has just got such a good heart. And I think what they're if, and this is just a total guess. I have not seen anything in, in the story to suggest this. I think what they're what they're foreshadowing is that this power is maybe not destined for chosen ones. It's maybe something anybody can do, but it's being hoarded by a malicious, you know, power. Yeah, it. it's it's clear during this training section in this first hour that that the headmaster is like maybe not a great dude. But what comes across from Garl just like effortlessly, like as if nothing happened, you know, is just like cool with losing an eye and like the years of neglect and just like yeah. here to be like a fun loving guy is just so off putting to me. I'm like, I don't know if I can like trust this character because like there's being a good dude and like having a good heart and letting it go. And then there's like, do you feel anything? Like, are you just like numb to... <laughs> 
life that you're just like cool with everything that's happened. I, I, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I couldn't help but feel so baffled by that moment. And, you know, now he's just part of the crew and it's fine. And I do like his personality enough. Like, I, I do think, you know, it helps that we basically have two speaking silent protagonists. We have someone with a bit more personality yeah, in the mix. That's what I was just so thinking, yeah. it, it, it works for me. And, and his he wasn't kidding. Like his ability to cook, like eventually the game kind of, it, it also has like a bit of Stardew Valley in it where you can find a lot of like just food supplies and cook a lot at camp. And that's crucial because characters only have so much MP, at least early on that you can do like a move or two uh, in a battle. So having the ability to heal without using MP is actually very important. So I do like that there's like a Samwise in the group who is not a chosen one, but he's like such a good friend. He's there for them and and actually does serve an important role. But the way we got that was so weird. And like, again, it just felt like an hour and a half of payoff led to nothing. You know, like I have a question for or you. setup, I should say. Does, yeah, go ahead. So Garl joins you. He's in combat also. Yes. OK, so one of my favorite mechanics in this game uh, and I'll. I'll tell you why I'm bringing this up in particular, but one of my favorite mechanics in the game is that if one of your characters gets knocked out, oh yeah, if you can survive a couple rounds of combat without them. They will get back up with half of their health. Does Garl also do that? Yeah, he does. That's bizarre. He does everything they do, except he doesn't have like an elemental he doesn't have magic. magic. Okay. The yeah. reason I'm bringing that up is because that, that mechanic feels pulled directly from Lost Odyssey, which is a game I talked about a lot by, by Miss Oh Walker. yeah. Uh, released on the Xbox 360 at a time when uh, Microsoft really needed to like be a hit in the Japanese market and like extremely wasn't. So they um, got a couple RPGs made uh, by Japanese studios like Mist Walker and Hironobu Sakaguchi, one of the people who made Chrono Trigger. It's all connected. Anyway, worked on that game. And that is a game that is very much focused on, if you haven't listened to our episode about it or haven't played it, it's very much focused on the idea of what it means to be immortal and like how much, yeah. how much of humanity is tied to the idea that like we all die one day. And one of the fascinating bits of that game is that your main character that you play as and the first person who joins your crew is also immortal. But you eventually get more party members who are not, uh, you know, you, you'll kind of have some party members who are mortal and some who aren't. And the ones who aren't like if they die, you have to like revive them with, you know, Phoenix down adjacent stuff or something like that. Like you have to use items to bring them back or like use magic to revive them or whatever. But all of the immortals, if they get knocked out during a, a, a piece of combat, they will just get back up eventually. Like it takes a couple turns, but eventually they'll just get back up, which is like one of the only saving graces that Miss Walker Studios gives you to to make it through <laughs> that game, which is like crushingly, Brutally famously difficult. difficult. Yeah. Yes. And I was hoping as soon as they introduced that stuff with this game, that if I was going to bring more people into the party, if they weren't trained the same way we were, that they would similarly like in Lost Odyssey if they got knocked out. And I was hoping that, that was the case with Garl, but it's weird. There is something like I, I have read in reviews that there are like because there's a whole I think it's the Fleshmancer or something. There That's are like, like the big bad, right? Yeah, there are bad guys that only Solstice Warriors can hit. And apparently that is the case. So like when you're up ah, against yeah. certain bosses, like Garl can only just, you know, make sandwiches in the background. <laughs> 
And again, like I, I, I just met another character who is like, she doesn't join the party, but she's like a really enthusiastic historian. And she's by far the best character in the game so far. She's not even in the in the team, <laughs> but she will just tell you stories at camp if you want to. Oh, cool! As we're noting, there's also like a Baldur's Gate three camp, uh, which now just become like the definitive camp in my head. But when you're like by a save point or whatever, or if there's like a campfire, you can set up camp and talk to everybody yeah. and cook and rest. Just in the uh, the world map too, you can like just hit the start button and go to camp whenever you want. What I love too is that the opening menu of the game has all the characters you have like as you get more they're all oh, by the campfire. that's nice it's that's a, that's the thing is that this game is really charming like I, I i know i'm coming off a bit harsh but it's just like i want like on paper that moment really works for me like having a character who is like so above it all that they can like withstand like trauma basically and emerge like not a bitter or resentful person yeah but the fact that like it just felt like the the writing wasn't acknowledging what we were seeing as the player Mm -hmm. and then when he joins i'm like is he a spy like i I don't (laughs) i don't buy it you know like i i wish that i i rarely you know if people send me their writing or whatever i never say what i would have done because it's not helpful feedback you should always just reflect on what's on the page and help them like find what the piece itself is saying but i think you know in this case like i think it would have worked better if Garl joined but later maybe have that moment of like hey I've waited 10 years for this and I've gone through my own training too and them saying hey you can't come with us have that lead to like a real moment of conflict that he then overcomes later when they need him Hmm. that I think would have really because them just being like oh you know what cool you can make sandwiches it's like what is this so uh, that's just like my main my main gripe but overall I I definitely want to see more of it through I definitely want to see who the other characters are and where the story is going because I clearly have I'm clearly invested if I have this reaction to the elements that don't work so um, I, I definitely want to keep playing it's a lot of fun yeah yeah I, I just for my piece I am enjoying the game a lot that training montage is definitely kind of like a weaker opening but yeah. even with that I'm willing to give this game a lot of grace I think and definitely want to keep seeing it through and uh my plan is to only bring my Switch with me to Japan. And one of my main things I want to do, at least like on the flight, is pretty much just like play Sea of Stars the whole time. Like I just, I really just kind of want to see this game through, Um, especially knowing that it's like on the shorter end in terms of story length. uh, And it seems to have a lot of like accessibility settings and like approachability stuff in terms of like, you can just turn on like an easy mode if you want to, you know, like at a certain point, if I'm like, I'm done with the combat here, I just want to kind of like, you know, fly through it and see the story to the end uh, that I can do that, which I think is great. But as you mentioned, just like visually stunning, sonically stunning, fun factor, 10 out of 10. Um, no, <laughs> no, good. I just it's a good game. I, I just think the game is like really hitting a lot of high notes for me. Um, and I think by the end of it, if it really like creates a narrative that I think I connect with a little bit more and sticks the landing on it, I will probably be able to oversee a lot of the early kind of missteps. Yeah, you know? I mean, I think it's definitely one of the more successful versions of this type of game, you know, yeah. of games that try to be Chrono Trigger. I think it's, yeah, but I think to the point that yeah. we were making earlier, like it doesn't, for all of the kind of blustering about that, it feels of all the games that we played that say they're inspired by Chrono Trigger, feels almost the least like it's inspired by Chrono Trigger. Yeah, I agree. It really is just the X slash that's there. Yeah. And like, and, <laughs> and the fact and that Mitsuda. they... And they walk in a line when they're on the world map. That's like it. Yeah. And there's like seagulls that fly over the world map. It honestly reminds me a lot of cross code as well. in that like there's yeah. sort of this uh, like 2D approach at 3D platforming and and dungeons and stuff. Yeah. Um, that game is more like 
arcadey and puzzly, I think. Yeah. But it's awesome. I mean, I, I think it's also like I'm happy we're at a point where it's like this year we have Chan Deco's Octopath Traveler 2 and Sea of Stars. And I think all three of those games capture a very distinct aspect of this era of RPGs. Chan Deco's, I think, really understands the sort of like melodrama of some of them. I mm-hmm. think it, it understands like ensemble storytelling and also like a really creative battle system i think if you want something that's like on the darker side and is more uh final fantasy and xeno gears than chrono trigger chained echoes is the one for you yeah octopath traveler 2 is like we're just gonna laser focus on like vibes and combat story is like more about the journey itself and i think what makes octopath traveler 2 way more successful than the first game in my opinion is that it is an open world it is a retro rpg with modern open world design yeah which is i think it does that remarkably well once you kind of realize that's what's happening yeah i haven't talked about it on the show but i have returned to octopath traveler 2 and have been really engaging with the open world stuff which has changed my opinion of it pretty dramatically yes i'm so glad i think sea of stars is really just more about the atmosphere than anything else like i think you know it, it gets the sense of adventure and the and just the presentation is just so good like it's worth it for that alone in some ways yeah but yeah i think like they all feel like they have pulled inspiration from different sources which is ideal mm-hmm. and these games i think have all found an identity of their own which is great yeah uh that's sea of stars you're playing it on xbox i think it's on game pass right that's how you're playing it it is, yeah. It's yeah. it's great on, on Xbox. I'm having a good time. And I've been playing it on my Nintendo Switch, which, unsurprisingly, this pixel art looks great on the OLED screen. Oh, yeah, I uh, imagine so. Really all about it. Uh, can't wait to play more of it, honestly. I'm, I'm really excited to get back into it. Yeah, me um, too. It's probably what I'll do after we're done recording this episode, honestly. Sorry, Garl. Sorry, Garl. It's funny to know that, like, that's the next thing that's going to happen as soon as I start the game. <laughs> Maybe you'll feel very differently. Uh, but I, I don't... Based on our mutual hunch i don't think you will yeah uh but anyway that's the game let's uh take a break and come back and we have so many more games to talk about we do we have a ton today all right talk to you soon bye-bye bye-bye hey brendan hello i know this is my usual domain of talking about 90s rpgs but i have actually been doing some research and preparing for something that will be unveiled to the world in the near future i'm excited but I've been playing a lot of 90s RPGs and I realized that I know we kind of dunk on it sometimes because the release schedule is like bizarre. Just like every eight months, Nintendo will tweet that something's been added to the virtual console. Yeah. But at this point, enough ambiguous time has passed that a lot of them are like stacked, specifically the Sega Genesis collection, which I forget exists yeah is really good it's got a lot of really great stuff including a lot of rpgs i had never played up until recently Mm. i've just been looking at like the history of the genre and one of the games that caught my eye was called shining force 2 yeah it's like a famous one yeah so there's there are like a there's a whole shining series that Sega (laughs) has that i think is kind of like uh it's changed a lot in more recent years but the original games one Developed by Camelot, creators of Waluigi. Oh, shit. I was realizing, like, while I was playing, I'm like, this reminds me a lot of, like, Golden Sun in tone and in, like, just the way, like, when I say yes or no, it's like an animated thing of, like, a guy's head shaking no. Yeah. It has that sense of humor. Oh, my God. The combat also looks exactly like Golden Sun. Yeah, it's very, it's amazing. Wow. Um, 
all this time I thought that like Golden Sun was their like breakout. I guess it was their original game, but like they have a long history of developing RPGs before then. Wow. The first. Uh, oh God, it's amazing. Sorry. I'm just looking at screenshots. It's amazing it cool? how much it looks like Golden Sun. It does. <laughs> I, I can't believe I never knew this. I feel like such a, such a fool. But uh, Shining in the Darkness was the first one. And Shining in the Darkness was a dungeon crawler. I've actually played a little bit of it. I, I was playing it on the Miu Mini you got me a long time ago. Oh, yeah. Great great game for that device mm. uh, i don't know why it's like perfect for shining in the darkness but it is <laughs> um, a lot of the early titles are dungeon crawlers but shining force 2 is actually a it's like a tactics game it's like one of the earliest uh, srpgs that exists very very much like fire emblem huh. the tone of this game rules so much this is like there's something about the rpgs of like a pre FF seven period that are kind of more openly embracing the sort of D and D roots of it. The, the way the game opens is a witch is staring a cauldron and she goes like, hello, I put a spell on you. That's why you're here. What do you want to do? <laughs> and they basically internalize like new game and continue as this witch like summoning your presence, which is already amazing. And then like the game just kicks off. It, it, it has this like, welcome to town theme that i was amazed didn't have lyrics like a musical <laughs> just like crunchy ass yeah yeah right every once in a while on the sega Gen it was one of my favorite parts of just like being a kid who grew up with only the sega genesis was every once in a while hearing a crunchy voice that's yes. been like completely compressed down to almost nothing come out of my tv speakers and being like oh my god the video game can talk exactly but the first you start as like kind of a uh almost like um oh who's the who's the character in fire, fire Emblem awakening with the pot on his head donald donald you kind of start as a donald where like your role in combat is kind of ambiguous but you get better and better the more you level up and your two friends are an elf uh, priestess. And the way they internalize knights is just as centaurs. So you have a centaur friend uh, who has like a spear and he can like run around the map very quickly. Wow. Love that. His name is Chester. He's amazing. <laughs> and the game actually plays remarkably well. Like it's definitely simple, at least early on. I think eventually you can like reclass and learn more stuff. But like in the opening hours, you like get the whole crew, you get a mage, you get, you know, whoever, and they all play uniquely. So the mage can kind of cast like, you know, AOE spells. And the way it works too is like it's a grid like fire emblem. And when you attack, it actually does load into like a more detailed animation of like the two characters fighting. It's beautiful. And this game was in, I think it came out in 94 in the US. It's only a few years after the very first Fire Emblem game, which actually also played on Switch because that was released in that weird, bizarre tactic Nintendo did twice where they're like, Limited time. this is available until March 31st. Yeah. So gross. This game like really does look significantly better than the first Fire Emblem. Mm. Like a different console, but like the first Fire Emblem is very much like an NES style thing. It actually is impressive in its own way. I did enjoy like playing through a map of that. With Fire Emblem, uh, the first one, it's kind of remarkable how much hasn't changed, even though like the iterations have improved upon it. Like yeah. it pretty much is that still, you know, it's kind of amazing <laughs> how much they set up there. But Shining Force 2, I think if you're interested in the history of the genre, it's a really remarkable and also like pretty like it 
plays pretty well still. Like I, I, I've enjoyed my time with it. There's no permadeath. In some ways, it's like not a bad starting point for a like strategy RPG. And the plot is very simple, but I'm enjoying the sort of like, I enjoy the tone of it. It's very happy to be a fantasy game. And there's some fun stuff going on where like the whole plot is kicked off because this rat guy stole a jewel. And <laughs> I think he's about to join my party now because he feels bad about it. I, just, <laughs> I don't know. I just like this stuff like that. It just makes me laugh because it's just so like it's it has no pretense about like, you know, it, it's interesting to compare this to Final Fantasy four, for example, where mm-hmm. like that game was taking a very critical view of games like this and being like, we could tell more of a story here. We can really question like, why am I a knight? Who am I fighting for? Who is the king? Like, why do we care about the king? Mm. Uh, it's in on a flip side of that. It's funny to see Shining Force 2 just be like, this all rules. Like, I'm just happy. Like, there's witches and elves and centaurs. We're going to have a great time. And uh, it's very infectious. I'm, I'm amazed how well it plays, you know, in a modern setting. Would highly recommend. It's on your Switch and you just don't even know it. Yeah. Uh, I, it's worth mentioning. I think you have to have the, like, higher tier Nintendo online to get access to the second Genesis Oh, dude. Stuff. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, which is uh, a little bit of a bummer, but uh, I have that. So you should definitely play it. It's I, a should, lot of fun. I should definitely play it. That That is exciting. Yeah, especially just like growing up with the Sega Genesis. There are so many games like this that I missed because like my tactic when I was five was to go to Funko Land and just dig my hand into the like bargain bin and pick out the game cartridge that looked the most interesting. And uh, that never ended up being any RPGs. So. <laughs> It, I mean, I, I do think uh, the Genesis is a bit overshadowed by the Super Nintendo in terms of RPGs and yeah. stuff like Chrono Trigger and Earthbound. But there are a few standouts. The other big one people point to is Fantasy Star 4, mm-hmm. which is sort of like Fantasy Star is sort of like Sega's sci-fi Dragon Quest in a lot of ways. Eventually became Fantasy Star Online, which I think is like the big one for a lot of people. But I did play the beginning of Fantasy Star 4 and, and also very impressed by it. They do a thing where like everything is very like simple and kind of like abstract but then there are these random like pixel drawn anime cutscenes that happen that are like really well done like mm. for like big moments they'll kind of show you a panel of a character like pointing you know or like some kind of dramatic scene cool I'll, I'll have to play more of that game before i give it its own proper segment but for now shining force 2 it's a a hidden gem on the genesis wow yeah i will maybe actually check that out i'm just like so floored by how much it looks like golden sun <laughs> Really it's also it. funny the box art of this era like every game cover at least the western box art for the genesis rpgs they're all like knockoff D covers that have like nothing to do with the game it's like always like a guy like raising a sword like a real guy with a sword it just shows you like the marketing of the time yeah it couldn't show you the actual art style of the game for some reason i wonder sorry i'm just thinking about golden sun they announced that golden sun is coming to Nintendo Switch Online, but just haven't released it yet. Yeah, it's it's on it's uh in the backlog of Game Boy Advance titles. I think they just recently added Fire Emblem uh to that as well, which yeah, is great. The Blazing Blade. Blazing Blade. Uh yeah. F Zero Maximum Velocity, which was a Game Boy Advance launch title, get to be released. Golden Sun and Kirby and the Amazing Mirror are the last three. In terms of the initial announcement of stuff that they said was gonna come to that. I wonder what's gonna happen when that's done. I wonder when they're done adding all of that stuff. Is when the is when the Switch Two comes out. 
it doesn't seem like there's a hard finish to any of the consoles. They just randomly will get more stuff. So like the Genesis was what it was the Super Nintendo and Genesis were the same announcement like a few years ago and they're still adding stuff. Yeah. So like at this point, like the Super Nintendo and, and Genesis libraries are are very very good yeah the game boy ones are kind of slowly catching up uh and then the 64 is the weird one where it's like there is a good selection there but the emulation is more hit or miss for some games yeah it seems like they fixed a lot of that stuff ever oh, since did they? yeah 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 they, they fixed that a long time ago yeah um but where they, have i been they are still i don't know there's still a bunch of games that they said were gonna be released for that that have not come out same thing with the game boy advance ones really weird there's just like it just really feels like they have that stuff waiting to go literally whenever they want. It's just like if they ever hit a marketing lull, they're like, I don't know. <laughs> Shining Force 2. <laughs> I don't know. Jelly Jelly Boy. Jelly Boy. Jelly Boy is directly above Earthbound in terms of the order of games. <laughs> and I'm like, how dare you? Like, how? why would you put Jelly Boy above this? <laughs> that shows you where Nintendo prioritizes the Mother series, I guess. Uh, anyway. You want to take a break? Let's do it. Okay. I need to play some Jelly Boy and then I'll come right back. Goodbye. Bye-bye. See you soon, Jelly Boy. And we're back. Hello. You're recording, right? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, we're, we're back. And uh, <laughs> I have I have four games to talk about uh, wow. because I had a bunch of games prepared for the last episode and then uh, a whole other week went by. Sorry, two episodes ago and then a whole other week went by and then I, I played even more games. So I have four games to choose from here, Steven. Which one do you want to start with? I'm going to roll a dice. Whoa. Holy shit. Yeah. Dude. The red. You really here. have gotten fucked up by Baldur's Gate, huh? <laughs> That's true. I didn't even make that connection. All right. I'm rolling a D4. Okay. So you number them one to four, like going down. Yeah. Got it. We yeah, yeah. I rolled a four. Wow. All right. Blasphemous 2 um, <laughs> is the sequel to Blasphemous, which is a game that I did not play. Blasphemous came out a, a couple of years ago. It's a pixel art, like roguelike Castlevania adjacent thing. You've seen it before. You've played it before. You, you know what this kind of game is like. And honestly, because that was the pitch, I didn't pick up Blasphemous. I was like, I don't, I don't know about this. I, I was just like, I don't know if I need another game to tide me over until uh, Silk Song comes out. You know, like I, I think I could just like chill on this entire genre for a little bit. So I didn't play Blasphemous. Years have gone by. Silk Song is still not out. Blasphemous 2 is released. Now you can't wait anymore. Yeah, no, I was yeah. like, all right, just fuck it. You know what? Rip the Band-Aid off. Put me in, coach. I'm going to play this thing. Uh, man, Steven, Blasphemous 2 fucks this game absolutely <laughs> rocks um i on it i didn't really know what i was getting into because i from what i remember of the way people talked about the original blasphemous you know it's it's a game where you're like doing a castlevania-esque thing but it's a little bit focused on combat it's kind of got that like soulsy difficulty to it but is like bloodborne sort of yeah, yeah but is i i think more inspired by castlevania than you know uh dark souls if that makes any Got sense it. like it's yeah. it's more trying to be castlevania than than uh anything else that it's pulling inspiration from it is interesting how much crossover there is though between the series yes. you know yes. like uh, we talked about that a lot in our, our metroidvania episode yeah and jumping into blasphemous too i mean you know so i think famously for me i'm not like a huge castlevania fan like when it comes to metroidvania like i definitely lean more towards metroid i think like the ways in which metroid is is pulling from and also kind of expanding on that genre speaks more to me than castlevania does but there's always that like itch for me to get castlevania and i think symphony of the night is the closest i got to that um, yeah. followed by some of the game boy advance stuff like kind of worked for me and the ds as well uh has a lot of great entries yeah, yeah. What, but like didn't really click with me as much as it did with you unfortunately not a like, portrait of ruin head yeah unfortunately not jill 
Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, excuse me, it's Charlotte and Jonathan. Oh, yeah. Well, who's, oh, Jill is Jill's in Resident Evil. Evil. Oh, yeah. Man. Jill, what, what the hell is this? What am I doing over here? That's okay. Losing my gamer cred. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I'm just imagining someone being like, he thought Jill was in Portrait of Doom. I'm like, I don't want to meet that guy. <laughs> anyway, I, I don't know. Just Castlevania, like, it, it's the thing I always want to get into, and it just, like, doesn't really work for me. And it turns out the thing I needed was, like, just, like, fucking brutal combat. Like, I just mm, need, yeah. I just needed, like, I needed the focus on movement to feel much stronger, and I needed the combat to be, like, really tight. That reminds me of what we, when we talked about um, D-Lit and Wonder Labyrinth. I feel like they really nailed that as well, because yes. it definitely feels more Castlevania, but they really made, like, a good-feeling combat system. Yes. Um, which is awesome. The thing about Blasphemous yeah. 2 for me so far is they nailed movement. Like, movement feels amazing. They give you, like, a dodge and kind of like a, uh, not only a dodge, but this kind of like uh, slide like you can slide under kind of like small gaps every once in a while um, so you have this like dodge where you can like dodge back and you can slide you get like the double jump and like the wall hang like immediately so they're really giving you a lot of the tools you need to be able to traverse the world and feel like you kind of can make your way around uh, comfortably very easily and the, I think the reason they do that is because the combat has a tendency to be very difficult especially when you get into like boss fights and situations like that but this game has some of the best pixel art I've ever seen like I, I think you know we're in this era where if there's an indie game and it has pixel art I think some people start to roll their eyes at that I think I personally have not really grown tired of that at all but I do need there to be some kind of like real intention and artistic voice it's harder to stand out I think exactly. it, for a while it was like it could be a novelty but now it's the norm so you have to do something special you have to do something really special and the art in blasphemous 2 is unbelievable the score equally amazing i love the world building the world building is fascinating i mean you are you are this uh character who needs to make their way to the top of this uh castle which is resting on the back of three giants these like three like stone giants which are like like mountain height like they're huge beings and you need to essentially appease them by wiping out these like you know three kind of main bosses quote unquote and just like the scale of that i think is is pronounced in a way that works really well i think they do a really good job of just like setting up the stakes i think this is also like famously, and I understand why now, coming from a, a Spanish developer and they have a Spanish voice track in this game that is amazing. Like when you start this mm. game, just switch the voice language immediately from the main menu and like don't look back. Just like keep subtitles on if you don't speak Spanish. Like just the voice acting is amazing. But all in all, I just had a great time with Blasphemous. I haven't dipped into it as much as I wanted to. And I think that'll be kind of the case with a lot of the games I'm about to talk about, but mainly because Starfield happened. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Blasphemous 2, another game I got on my Switch for my trip, and I'm so excited to dip into and play a lot more of. Um, it really got its hooks in me, like, immediately. I think it, it makes an amazing first impression and almost does everything that I wish Castlevania always did. Mm. And I, th I think I think it, this is going to be, like, one of the ones for me. I'm, like, really blown away. I got to check it out. I, unlike you, love Castlevania. So I I definitely think this this will work for me, for sure. Yeah, I think just, like, prepare yourself for it being difficult. Sure. And outside that, you're going to have a great time. Hell yeah. yeah. Can't wait. Uh, all right. Roll the die. <laughs> okay. Thank you for indulging me. Yeah, of course. Uh, I rolled a three. You rolled a three. Wow. Okay. This is actually a good pairing because uh, this is the other game that I haven't played as much of as I would like to, again, because of Starfield. Armored Core 6 Fires of Rubicon. It's here. It's here. It's out. It's really interesting. So you and I talked about this a little bit off the show, but I, I just am really surprised that this is the new game by From Software. 
the developers of Elden Ring last year's biggest deal two years ago. Last year. That was last year. Last oh March. Yeah. I'm, I'm all I'm all yeah. fucked up. Last year's biggest release. The thing that everyone kind of acknowledges is probably going to change the industry. Like a lot of games probably entered pre-production the day after Elden Ring came out. You know, like that that kind of huge seismic thing. I think you and I talked a lot in the last episode about like Skyrim came out and kind of changed everything. I think Elden Ring is going to have like an impact on the industry that we won't realize until like two or three years from now when some of those games start coming out. Exactly. This is the next game by the team that made that. And I'm not hearing that much about it. Like there are some people who are like big Armored Core fans. They've been Armored Core fans for a long time and they are stoked about it. You know, go listen to like Remap Radio, the new show by the the team that used to do Waypoint. Like that crew, big Armored Core fans, big mech heads, stoked about it. They've been talking about it for like multiple episodes. They're all about it. Like great team to listen to if you want to hear like really in-depth stuff about Armored Core 6. I'm coming at this from some from the perspective of somebody who is like, oh, it's from software. I I was not connected to from software, like emotionally or metaphysically in the era where they were making Armored Core because I only got into them when, you know, the Dark Souls era, essentially. So I was kind of wondering, is there is there going to be any kind of on ramp for new players? You know, is this is Armored Core 6 a game that is going to kind of ease people into this world if they have not played Armored Cores 1 through 5? Like, is this just for the old heads or is this for new fans also? And I found the game to be a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B in a lot of ways, mainly because this is the earliest time to wall of any FromSoft game. Like, easily. I picked this game up on launch day, played it for about, I don't know, 15 minutes, got to the end of the tutorial, which ends with a boss where they're like, we're going to put all of the concepts that we just taught you together. You know, we're, we're just going to we're going to take everything that we just taught you. We're going to put it all together. Go fight this boss. And the boss is like a big, like kind of mech helicopter that is just loaded with like heat seeking missiles, machine guns can like kind of fly around, juke out of the way when you're trying to attack it. And it is like. 15 times your size you you are a three-story tall mech and this thing is like 15 times as big as you are wow and it just brutalizes you like over and over and over again it is father gascoigne you know yeah. it, it is like the wall it is uh what's his name from uh elden ring margit he's like you know yeah here's margit again but it's the tutorial it's the beginning of the game <laughs> you are literally 15 minutes into the video game and they're like if you don't get past this you're not seeing any more of armored core 6 and you know what my first night with the game i did up to that point fought that boss like four or five times got absolutely ruined every single time and then put the game down and two things happened one was i read a piece by a friend of the show, Chris Plant, that he wrote for Polygon about how much he loved Armored Core 6. And he's been on our show before talking about Elden Ring specifically as somebody who has not really connected with FromSoft stuff in the past. Uh, Elden Ring was kind of the first time that things really clicked for him. And he wasn't alone. That seemed to be a pretty common thing for for a variety of reasons. Yeah, totally. Uh, But yeah. But he loves Armored Core 6, Fires of Rubicon. And I was like, that's interesting. Like, it's really interesting to me that he's clicking with that. And I I was wondering, like, am I just missing something or what? And then last week for me, two weeks ago for you, dear listener, I talked to Christian Spicer on the show about Immortals of Avium, a a new game released by EA. And at the end of that episode or that little like mini episode, uh, I was just like, you know, what else are you thinking about? What else are you talking about? And he just made this really impassioned plea for the PlayStation 3. He just was like, you guys just talked about the Sega Dreamcast. 
you guys just talked about this like era where like video games were about to explode into something bigger. You know, we, we have left 2D. We're entering 3D. People haven't super figured it out, but a lot of developers were given kind of free range to try whatever they wanted with the Dreamcast. And like that was a really cool era. And the PS3 is almost that again. Like the PS3 is an era that's kind of lost to time where like Sony hadn't quite figured out what they wanted to become. You know, like when I think of Sony and PlayStation Studios, I think really of the PS4 exclusives. Like, yes, Uncharted and stuff like that. That was all on the PS3. But I think they really like got into lockstep and figured out what they wanted their strategy to be, which we're still seeing in the PS5 era during the PS3. And the more I was thinking about that, that PS3 like weirdness the more I was like, I should go give Armored Core another shot. I don't know. I don't know what it was, but those two things really coalesced for me where I was like, I just want to sit down and play that game again. And I did. I sat down and I was like, I'm going to give this a shot. I texted. I texted Plant. I was like, hey, I'm really stuck on this boss. Do you have any advice? He was like, use the sword. I was like, I'm already using the sword. He's like, I don't have any more advice for you. I was like, okay. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Uh, and I just I just was like, all right, this is a FromSoft game. There's a tough boss. I'm going to overcome the tough boss. I'm going to prove myself. I'm going to learn how to play this game and I'm going to do it. Because, I mean, at this point in the game, they've taught you, hey, you're a mech. You have lock on systems. You have a machine gun and missiles uh, and a sword. Good luck. You know, like that's all you've been taught. And every enemy that you fought is just like a little thing where you like shoot it with a machine gun a couple times and it blows up or it's like a couple little helicopters and you can target all of them with missiles, you know, do kind of like a spread target and, and the missiles like shoot out of your back and just each of them takes out one of the helicopters. You've never fought something big that has like a lot of health. So I was like, I, all right, you know, they just, they want me to learn what this is like. So I'm just going to dip into it. I'm going to do it. And, uh, it took me like 45 minutes probably of just like wow. dying and dying and dying and dying. And I got to the point where the game started throwing up tips at me, which I was like, <laughs> if a FromSoft game is hitting me with a, with like a, Hey, here's how to beat this boss screen. Like, you know, you're fucking up. And eventually I overcame it. And I'll be honest, this, you and I have talked about this a lot on the show with talking about previous FromSoft games. There are two kinds of FromSoft bosses. There's the ones where you beat and you jump out of your chair and you're like, fuck yeah, I did it. Hell yeah. yes. And there's the other ones where you're so mad you don't even respond. You just move on. You're just like, thank God that's over. Yeah. Fire Giant versus Margit, uh, basically. <laughs> yes. Uh, those are the two kinds of bosses. Yeah. This was this was the latter. This was like, I beat that thing. I was like, great. I get to see what the rest of the game is. Because I don't even I don't even know what Armored Core is still. You know, I haven't even finished the tutorial technically. I just need to see what the rest of the game is. And as soon as you beat that boss, they're like, cool. Here's your hanger. Here's your mech start customizing you can you can swap all this stuff out you can get rid of your sword you can put a shield on like you could do all of this stuff if you want but you don't have to here's your first mission go for it and the first mission man steven it's like you know four little guys with almost no health you have to go take out super easy knock it out get a bunch of money move on to the next mission same deal again next mission same deal again and what i started to realize the more i played it i was like Christian Spicer, like the, the the Nostradamus of the show, for some reason, I was like, this is the best PS3 game made in 2023. Like the the mission structure of this game feels so much to me like that of a bygone era. And I'm sure it's making old school Armored Core fans so happy that they didn't like break away and try and do like Elden Ring or Dark Souls, for example, just in the Armored Core universe. I think there was a lot of people outside of that fandom who wanted that. Like I was excited for that. I was excited for the idea of here's a team that has only been making, you know, Souls level stuff, Souls-esque stuff for the past like 
20 years almost at this point coming back and saying we're going to make a new armored core game and i think the expectation for a lot of people who weren't fans of armored core was that you're going to play and it's going to be a kind of metroidvania-esque experience or it's going to be a big open world like elden ring or it's going to be a more story focused thing like sekiro like there are all of these ideas that it could have been and instead it's just what it was on the ps3 again like that's kind of yeah that's kind of what i assumed i mean i know there was a lot of speculation otherwise but i'm honestly really glad that's what it is because i think that there's like there's room for them to branch out a little bit and to also like revive one of their like beloved long-running series that like it like not everything is going to be the talk to the guy at the campfire who like whispers (laughs) secrets at you like there's also room for like a mech game that's all about like from what i know about the series a lot of it is really like you got to be the kind of person who loves like tinkering and being like i'm going to change my shoulder plate and like Mm -hmm. feel the exact like difference that makes it's you know it's a whole subgenre the the mecha games i i just sort of assumed this like wasn't really for me like it's a game that i will probably want to play before the year is over just to experience it but i i just once i kind of knew that it wasn't you know like i guess like in line with like the from soft like auteur style Mm. I, I didn't really know like what I wanted from it other than like experiencing a new thing, but I'm glad it's working for you. And I do like the PS3 comparison, something that I, I talked to Christian a bit after your episode with him. And I do think there is sort of this uncanny valley of retro where it's like, we're at a point right now where like the Dreamcast and GameCube are becoming like old enough that they are seen as like retro yes. in like, a, a cool way. But the PS3 and the 360 are sort of that like uncanny valley of like, they just sort of feel old. Like, there's mm-hmm. not like this reverence for them yet, you know? And I think a lot of that is due to, to like the graphical style. Like I think there is something about early 3D that has kind of become charming. Yeah. And a lot of the 2D consoles just have a timeless look already. So they were kind of geared to be retro, like from go, but they're like, again, oblivion. Like that is like the poster child of the uncanny Valley in every way, (laughs) Um, including like how it feels to be old enough to be old, but not retro. Right. And I think, I do think it's worth exploring that library for, I mean, cause again, I think the two most experimental eras for Sony in terms of the games they were like producing, I mean, PS2 just has a huge number of games, but the PS1 and the PS3 both have this feeling of like, they were just kind of throwing ideas at the wall to see what sticks. And that's what makes those generations so special, I think. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I, I yeah, when I think of the PS3 era specifically, like Oblivion is, is a huge thing. Like as soon as I got a PS3, the first thing I did was I got all three Uncharted games and Oblivion. Even though I already had an Xbox 360 and Oblivion on there, I was like, I'm getting this again. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. And, and honestly, like a lot of that era for me also is that, you know, clawing towards being the most realistic thing possible which as you and I talked about on the Dreamcast episode like that's that's the you know the sirens call of 3D video game development you know that's that's been there since the beginning since like the PS1 and the and the N64 like there are always games out there saying that they're the most realistic thing ever made knowing that you you know you're signing a document that is just like signing yourself over to aging as quickly as possible right yeah. like, <laughs> exactly unfortunately um but there are those kind of standout games, but I think what's working for me so much about Armored Core 6, Fires of Rubicon, is that it feels like a PS3 game in its mechanics and not in its game feel or like look. Because it looks 
beautiful. Like it looks stunning. It's a beautiful game. You know, I, as beautiful as a world that's been decimated by mech war can look, I guess, because it, it's pretty dour. It's pretty dour out there. But this idea that like, oh, I'm just dipping into a mission. I'm going to get some credits. I'm going to go back to the mission log. I'm going to take another mission. I'm going to get some credits. I'm going to go back. And every once in a while, you'll keep going and going and going until you bump up against a wall. Maybe you find another boss fight that's like a little bit too hard. You're like, okay, I'm going to go into the like mech customization screen. It's not as daunting as I was expecting. This was my this was my big concern because I am not to be clear. I'm not a person who is like chomping at the bit to go in and and like customize my mech. That's not that's not the thing that's pulling me towards playing Armored Core 6. It's more the like curiosity of the FromSoft of it all. You know, like, yeah, where, where are they at as a company? I, I have found that the customization in Armored Core 6 is a lot more lenient and a lot more gracious than I was expecting. We're like, they just want you to feel as cool as possible. And I think that's like the main thing I want to illustrate with this game. They just want you to feel cool and do the coolest thing you can possibly imagine. And that's actually the the kind of like thesis statement of Plants piece for Polygon is like the entire game is about like if you think it would look cool to kill an enemy this way or take out a mech this way or like go from here to here this way then do that. And the game will probably reward that. You know, if you go in trying to play like a souls game and like taking your time and like sitting back and like watching enemy movements and things like that, you probably won't do as well as if you run up and just like, okay, I'm going to target this guy, shoot him with all, all of the missiles I have on my back. And as soon as he comes towards me, I'm going to dodge out of the way and then like hit him with my laser sword. Or I have this big fucking pile driver, like just piece of metal. It's essentially just like, it's just, it's just a, big like i don't even know like a like a beam of of steel on my back and if a guy comes at me and misses his swing i could just impale him with this big beam of metal you know (laughs) like and it just feels sick to do that it's the equivalent of in dark souls being able to sneak up behind an enemy or like if you're fighting a boss or something and you're able to get like a critical attack on them from behind or something it's that but it's over and over and over again it's so fast paced and it's so brutal and it's so like sick to pull it off like it it is i think when people watched gundam you know in the 80s and 90s and thought like man it'd be so cool to do something like that even though the world of gundam is like pretty brutal also but like it'd be so cool to like be piloting a mech and doing that like armored core 6 is your power fantasy for that it will bring that to life and it will make you feel like a badass over and over and over and over again but if you do run into a wall like you can go back. You could you could go and replay old missions and get that same amount of credits over and over again and just like build up your cache of money and then spend it, you know, blow it building the coolest mech you possibly can. You can jump into photo mode and take pictures of your mech in the hangar however you want. I obviously built a Waluigi mech because like, <laughs> what else am I going to do? I just I, I love that structure of a game. I love that it's letting me take my time. The thing that it feels closest to is also from the PS3 era, but it's, you know, handheld is um Crisis Core, Final Fantasy 7 Crisis Core, <laughs> where you play as Zack, who is, you know, uh he's joined soldier and you're just given this like big slate of missions that you have to go do, yeah. you know, and you just go out and do the mission and come back and go out and do it again. I was I was also thinking of Final Fantasy 16 while you were talking as well because mm. that game also feels like inherently PS3 yeah. in a lot of yeah, ways. Like, it feels I, like I agree with you. It feels like if God of War didn't become Last of Us, you know, like it, it does have <laughs> that sort of like without the like more uh, like edgelord part of of God of War, yeah. like it has that sort of spectacle of like killing gods in this like over the top way mm-hmm. and is also mission based. Right. 
I, I think overall, like if I'm trying to figure out like what is it of that era, like what is the distinction between PS3 and PS4? Is I think like I, I honestly think it's just like games were like a lot gamier in the structure. You know, I think that like a lot of the Sony first party stuff in particular on PS4 is like very concerned with being kind of this like seamless film like experience. Yeah. But like I think the PS3 was like unabashedly video gamey. Yeah. In a lot of ways. And one isn't inherently better than the other. I just think like it is fun to see both, especially from someone like FromSoft, who's become like, you know, this this high standard of like mm-hmm. high art in games. So that to see them just be like, yeah, it's gonna be like a fun ass mech fantasy game. I think is like very valuable. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. And and like speaking to the PS3, I mean, you know, even Naughty Dog, who ended the generation with The Last of Us. You couldn't ask for a better bookend to the end of the PS3 era, like as the harbinger of what the next generation and like what just video games were going to be like after that, you know, but the PS3 generation is them getting to the last of us you watch uncharted one and then two well now is a good time i guess <laughs> we're doing uh the, the next bonus episode we're doing is the uncharted trilogy which i can't believe we had planned this before christian even came on the show and talked about the ps3 by the way um this is this has been in the works for a long time but anyway yeah we're going to do uncharted one through three and then at some point later on we'll do four and lost legacy but yeah. we figured one through three was kind of its own thing yeah uh so we're gonna do that totally. and actually i've never played three that's been on my backlog for forever oh that's exciting so i'm excited to play uh, yeah i can't one. wait to hear I, your thoughts about it uh yeah. especially now interesting anyway like you're you're watching this team slowly get to what is going to be the future of games but like uncharted one very much is like the like awkward teenage years of naughty dog figuring out their like filmic cinematic future you compared it to the dreamcast which feels so apt yeah like, it does feel like a dreamcast game in a, lot, in of a lot of ways yeah yeah and uh yeah i don't know i'm, I'm just i'm i'm really all about armored core 6 is another game that like I, I didn't get to put enough time into because i got starfield code but uh man that game that's that's one i'm gonna go back to and probably have a lot of fun with i'm honestly kind of grateful that i'm done with Baldur's gate 3 just so i can have time for like anything else so i definitely <laughs> <laughs> play this before the year is over cool uh yeah. all right uh I, I guess roll roll a, a, a die well, with what one and two will be one and three and four will be the other great that? yeah perfect roll the four you rolled a four all right this is uh, a continuation of a, a game you brought to the show a couple weeks ago uh you brought opus three echo of star song echo of star song to the show yeah uh, and i i said during that episode that I would go back and check out the first two. Uh, and I sure did that. Uh, but the one that I want to bring specifically is the first one, Opus, the day we found earth, which, um, we're weird to have played, I think in the lead up to Starfield, but is very much about that. Like that era of space exploration where like kind of anything is possible and humanity is like kind of at the fringes of like, you know, uh, just, just exploring the galaxy. But we're at the point in, uh, Opus, the day we found earth where earth has been left behind so long ago that people believe it's like a fiction. Like people don't even believe that it was real. Oh, it's like a mythical. But you play as uh, a little like AI assistant robot on a spaceship filled with researchers who are trying to see if they can find Earth. They know some specific things like based on the hearsay and legacy of people who claimed that Earth was real that they might be able to find it based off of those like specific specifications. And 
it's interesting to play this. I, I think I think if you play this, I would highly recommend playing it on mobile specifically. I know it is available elsewhere, but and they're on mobile first. Yes. The first two games were yeah. Th- this one works really well as a mobile game, um, specifically because it's it's a little bit repetitious. But you're playing as this robot who is literally just going and looking at this big star chart, and you're given like some kind of vague coordinates. And you need to try and navigate space just by kind of like looking around and seeing if you can find the exact star in space that these coordinates are pointing to. Like there, there's an AI that's running the space station that has kind of this like mega telescope. And it's like we, we have this vague idea that we're picking up some signals of a planet that might be like the one you're looking for. And it's around here and you need to pinpoint accurately where that is. So it ends up being a puzzle game more than anything else, which I was really surprised by. And every time you go and and try and find one of those spots and scan it, it will tell you the percentage likelihood that it was Earth at one point. Oh, wow. And every time you scan one, you go back from space into the space station. And then there's like a little bit of story dialogue. Um, I don't want to say too much about what happens because I think it's interesting and good. But I will just say the game hooked me. I played it in like two sittings. I like really couldn't put it down during the second sitting, even though it feels a little bit like you're doing the same thing over and over again. Um, I think the story is interesting and rewarding enough. And there's actually enough choice in the story that you'll probably want to play through it maybe more than once even. It's a great game. And I think it's also either like a dollar or free. So yeah. check it out. <laughs> That's awesome. I should get back to that. I definitely want to see through the third one because I've been really enjoying that one as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm planning on picking that up before I before I leave also. I like how they're all, they also all seem to be pretty distinct from each other. Like they seem like they all are telling their own story. That might be like loosely connected, but yeah. My understanding. So I started the second one. Um, I don't have a lot to say about it, so I probably won't like talk about it, talk about it. But my understanding based on having played the first one is that I think they're probably in the same universe. Got it. I don't mean like physically in the same universe. I mean like storytelling universe. I just think in very different times in that universe. Got it. That makes sense. And there's also, they just announced a fourth one. There's a trailer for it that seems to be like Amazing. about photography and memory uh, and is in visibly at least looks more like present day. Um, oh, cool. There's sort of a look to the third one that's kind of like Star Wars-y mm. where like people kind of have like, you know, uh, that kind of fashion. And it's like, this is either like the future or the distant past, <laughs> you know, one or the other. Uh, but the fourth one looks like it's more of like a contemporary story. Uh, so it's interesting. Yeah. Um, that's Opus, The Day We Found Earth. I played it on uh, my my cellular telephone. I'm just going to roll the dice again, even though there's only one there's left. There's only one left. Yeah, go for it. Why not? I was hoping it'd be one. It's three. Oh, yeah. Well, that means I'm talking about Venba. <laughs> this is a game that I, I really, really, really wanted to check out um, and just like kept kind of putting it off. I don't know why. I was just like, I, I don't know. Like, I know it's probably going to be like sad. You know, like mm-hmm. you, you ever have those experiences where you're like, I know this thing is probably going to tug at my heartstrings in a way I'm not like super prepared for or want yeah. to sign up for. It's like it's actually why I struggle to watch a lot of like um, specifically like horror movies. I, I'm just like, I don't really want to experience that right now. Yeah, like, I, I, I always enjoy it. Like I've definitely gotten more into horror games and like, you know, in October, I'll seek that up. Like with horror movies, I'm like, I don't really need that right now. Uh, I need to be sold on it. Yeah. So uh, Venba, if you don't know about it, is a, a game about uh, an Indian family that goes to Canada in the 80s. Uh, specifically, it's a, it's a husband and wife and, and they are um, in Canada just like kind of trying to make ends meet. And it's pretty tough, you know, as people who immigrated over there, they did it because, you know, they thought they were going to have better opportunities there and it's like not quite going their way. But the mechanics of the game are specifically cooking 
food. And Venba is the name of the protagonist that you play as, um, who is a woman who has a cookbook from her mother uh, that was left to her by her mother. And uh, the cookbook is like kind of ruined. Um, there's like some instructions that are very clear and then some that aren't. Um, and Venba has gone in and like written some notes in the margins of them uh, to try and like to try and like figure out these recipes, you know, and in some cases she's like, well, I'm just going to make it the way I know how to make it. In some ways it's like, let me, okay, I've made it the way I know how to make it, but let me try and make it this way. What I didn't expect because I thought that the game was just going to kind of be like, I don't want to say like a cooking mama experience, but I thought it was going to be more focused on cooking over and over and over again. Like I thought it was going to be like getting it right and like trying all these different things or whatever. But cooking is more of like a meditative process. Like you can fuck up as many times as you want. And at any point, Venmo would be like, okay, let me, let me start over and try again. You know, just try this. Um, And I think, I think that speaks to what this game is really trying to get across which is, you know, the the cultural significance of food in Indian culture, which like I'm not an Indian person, obviously, I'm just a fucking white guy. So just to be clear, I'm not like an authority on this. But the feeling that I got from this specifically is like the focus on the culinary experience in Indian culture and, and the, the meditative process specifically of like going through the motions of this historical recipe that has now been passed down, you know, from your mother and from her mother before her and her mother before her and taking this food and bringing it to life and using it as a way to like comfort or help people because the food that you're cooking is always or, or sorry that anytime you get launched into a cooking mini game is like a significant moment in the history and in the lives of Venba and her husband. Uh, so you start off like around right when they move to Canada and it's, you know, you just like cook something very quick specifically to like just kind of appease your husband who uh, doesn't have the time to cook anything for himself. Uh, so you just kind of like knock something out really quick. And then later on, it's like, oh, we kind of like miss home a little bit, you know, so you cook something to kind of remind yourselves of home. Later on, there's a moment where I, I don't want to say everything and spoil the whole game because it's about an hour and a half long. Like You can play it just in one sitting, which I did and I would recommend doing, honestly. But there's a moment where Venba reveals that she's pregnant. Uh, and that is like this kind of like big, huge culinary experience where she's like, I'm going to cook like a, a really extravagant meal and we're going to have like a really special dinner to talk about this, uh, to share this news. Um, yeah. And I just found it so touching. It gets into some really kind of heavy themes. It has a tendency to be like really saccharine in a way that I appreciate, not in a way that I think is like overblown or like uh, goes too far in any direction. I, I think I think it really sticks every single emotional beat that it tries to stick. I found it so emotionally resonant. I cried a lot playing this game. I think it's like really, really touching. Um, wow. I don't want to say a whole lot more about it, but it's really it's really tough. It's really touching. I think the cooking mechanic is like honestly really great. Um, I, I think it's a little bit like kind of a something to do while you make your way through the story in some cases. Uh, in a lot of other cases, I think it's like a really intrinsic link between what the game is trying to do thematically and what the game is trying to do mechanically, which is the thing that you and I talk about a lot and is like kind of the highest praise you can give a game. Yeah, I, I love when games kind of have that kind of singular focus too. Like it, yeah. I was thinking about unpacking while you're talking. Yes. Which is a game that is actually, I mean, it's just you get given a room and you unpack things uh, and it's clear, like every room is clearly at a different point in that character's life, but it does like manage to tell a story through that singular action. In this case, it sounds like it's doing that with cooking. Yeah, it's I think a really spectacular game. Again, uh, it, you could play it in like one sitting. It's on Switch. I played it on Game Pass, uh, so you can mm. you can like knock it out real quick. It's one of the best games of the year. I'll put some links to some writing about the game uh, in the show notes as well. 
um, if you want to read more about it, which I would recommend doing to get some different perspectives that aren't just mine. But I, I really, really, really loved Venpa. And I think you should play it. I think you'd like it a lot. Yeah, I definitely will. Add it to the backlog, baby. Yeah, it's uh, it's fantastic. Hell yeah. Is that it? That's it. My dice also disappeared weirdly. <laughs> it just poof. dissolved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is it. You want to you want to you want to wrap up? Sure. Um, wow, we did it. We recorded two episodes in one sitting. Uh, hey, thank you for listening. Interthecast.online is the place that has everything about the show. If you really like us, you can share it with a friend. You can review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, although you can write a review on Apple Podcasts, which would be very helpful. Thank you to those who have done that. You can also support us on Patreon uh, if you really want to support us financially. It does help us grow. It allows us to buy games and talk about more stuff, pay AJ. It's helped us out tremendously. Uh, we're at a point now where I think we feel really stable, but you know, any any contribution there helps us grow as a show. So thank you for those who are able to do that. And yeah, we accidentally announced our bonus that should be coming out either at the end of September, beginning of October will be the Uncharted Trilogy, which are the games that are in the Nathan Drake collection, if you have that. Um, I think Legacy of Thieves is for and uh, Lost Legacy. Um, which are also excellent. And we'll talk about those at some point. What else? We do have our bonus set for October, but I'll wait to announce that one uh, when we're full Halloween season. If you've been paying attention over the past couple of months, you know what we're playing. You probably know, but I still think like, I see a lot of plays like right now it's September 3rd. So, okay, I'll let it slide now. But like a couple of weeks ago when it was like mid-August, late August, I started seeing like Halloween decorations. I'm like, can you wait a little bit? <laughs> it's like not even fall, you know? Yeah. Unacceptable. What uh, What's going to be happening while I'm gone, Stephen? I'm, I'm going to be away and there's a there's a week that we didn't record an episode for. Oh, yeah. While you're gone, our good friend Will will be joining us, the composer of our theme song and uh, the guest. We've had them on many times for our Mother 3 episode uh, and other episodes as well for our Paper Mario Thousand Year Door episode. So they will be joining us in your absence. And I think we're going to talk about New Vegas uh, as one of the games. So that'll be fun. Which I, th- I, I think it's a great in a month where Starfield is going to be like reigning supreme. Yeah, that's what I mean. I, I think I'm I'm compelled. I even wanted to like check out, you know, other Bethesda and Obsidian games, like just to kind of see how it feels. Because I do think one of the dangers of like talking about Bethesda games is kind of having like a built up image of what the game is in your head. Yeah. You know, and that's the case with any game. But I think with Bethesda, it just feels like what it, what is Skyrim actually? Like, is it what I think it is, you know? <laughs> yeah. But we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. I know New Vegas will be one of them. I, I also might bring up Earthbound a bit because I've been playing a lot of that. So yeah, it'll be, it'll be a good time. Looking forward to it. Great. I will I will miss you, of course, but I think it'll be fun. Yeah, I'll, I'll miss doing the show, but uh, I'm I'm fulfilling a, a lifelong dream. So that'll that's be what fun. it's all about, you yeah. know? Cool. Well, that's it. That's all I got. What else do you want from me? I don't think anything else. I, where where can people find you on the internet? How about that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm forever tormented by the way we closed last episode. It was just like, bye-bye. I'm Stephen. <laughs> uh, you can find me at Stephen Hilger and at Stephen Hilger Art on social media. I'm still trying to figure out. I've been very inactive and probably will for a while. I'll share the important stuff. I'll share when I'm working on something cool or something for the show. But uh, I'm, I think Blue Sky will probably be the place, but I still have Twitter. I still have... Um, uh, Tumblr as well. Uh, I'm, I'm in a variety of places for now. Mm. Uh, and we'll see which one sticks. I'm uh, at Brendan Bigley on everything. I'm mainly on threads. 
if I'm being honest. Oh, yeah. I yeah. forgot about threads. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Whoops. I, I'm mainly on threads. Uh, you can also go to Bren.photo if you want to see my photography. I've been sharing a lot more of that recently, too. Uh, so Very cool. That's cool. Uh, there's going to be a lot of it while I'm in Japan. So stay tuned. Yeah, I can't wait to see your photos. Yeah. Uh, anyway, thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next week. Bye-bye. Love you. Bye-bye. Love you.